0: Okay, if you would like to turn in your Bibles to the book of Zechariah, and we're going to be in chapter 11 and 12 this morning. So just a quick reminder of what we've seen so far. Zechariah, one of the three post-exile prophets, along with Malachi and Haggai. Haggai comes onto the scene, 518 BC, and speaks to the nation and says, consider your ways. You've been sowing to yourself. You've been concentrating on your own lives, your own houses, everything. And he says, think about God. Think about the temple. The temple's laying in ruins. What have you been doing? They've been back in the land for 19 years at this point. And just in, in a matter of months, Haggai stirs the people. And they set about rebuilding the temple. Two months later, Zechariah comes onto the scene. And he says, now start to think about your relationship with God. And it really challenged them into their spiritual life. And firstly, we give the exhortation to repent, to be obedient to the Lord, not to repeat the mistakes that have led them into this position in the first place. And that's followed then in the first six chapters by a series of eight or some count ten visions Zechariah seems to receive all in one night. And those visions seem to lay out the the future history of the nation of Israel from 518 BC right the way through to the time that the Messiah would return and then into the Millennial Kingdom. Then in chapter 7 and 8, we have this situation, historical uh, situation, where these people are sent down to Bethel to inquire as to whether they should carry on keeping the fasts that they'd kept whilst they were in Babylon, then with certain key dates—the date that the Babylonians and Nebuchadnezzar had laid siege and destroyed Jerusalem, the date that Gedaliah, the governor that had been placed in charge of the land had been then assassinated. And these certain dates, they have kind of kept as memorials through the 70 years in Babylon. And they, they kind of send down to Bethel to ask the question, you know, do we need to carry on doing this now that we're back in the land? And effectively, God says, I'm going to turn your fasts into feasts. Those things that you remembered with sadness in your heart, I'm going to turn this around and you'll remember it with joy because you'll see what God is going to do. And that then leads us into this final section of the book from chapters 9 through 14. And typically the first section of this really seems to focus very much on the Messiah's first advent. There's a lot of uh, overlap. But then the second section from 12 through 14 seems to emphasize the second advent. So the first advent when Jesus came, was born of a virgin in Bethlehem, and of course ended up giving his life at Calvary. we're talking about some of those things. We'll see some of the prophecies this morning in regard to that. And then the second section, we're kind of in this overlap this morning between chapter 11 and chapter 12. And then you see the second advent and the scope of these things. In fact, Chuck Misler says the scope of this final section from 9 to 14 is the same as the visions in chapters 1 to 6. So what we're looking at here, in a sense, is a panoramic looking from the time from 518 BC to the time of the coming kingdom. And you know, we pray, don't we? Jesus said to pray, thy kingdom come. What kingdom was he talking about? Talking about that kingdom that effectively is coming from heaven that's going to be established on earth. It was one of the most prolific subjects of the whole of the Old Testament, that the Messiah would come and set up his kingdom to rule and reign. When Gabriel speaks to Mary, he says that the child that she's carrying would sit on the throne of David and rule over the house of Israel. Well, that didn't happen when Jesus came the first time. So either Gabriel got it wrong, which I don't think so, or as so many scriptures tell us, there is a time yet coming when the Messiah, when Jesus Christ, will sit and rule and reign over the whole earth. And there are so many passages devoted to that. Daniel chapter uh, 3, Daniel chapter 7, 6 and 7, oh, sorry, Daniel chapter 7 specifically, all deal with this kind of theme. And again, many books in the New Testament constantly talk about this time that is yet ahead of us. Again, the same as the visions in chapters 1 to 6, 9 to 14 are uh, from Zechariah's time to the establishment of the kingdom over Israel in blessing and reference to Acts chapter 1 verse 6. You remember when the disciples said to Jesus, will you now, will you at this time restore the kingdom? You know, the disciples all along have been waiting for the Messiah, Jesus, they accepted him as the Messiah to restore the kingdom. They thought Jesus was going to overthrow Rome. So much so that when that crowd gathered after They've been in Gethsemane, and the crowd all come with their clubs and sticks and whatever to try and arrest Jesus. Peter thinks this is the moment, so he draws his sword and he's ready to do battle. He thinks this is the moment. This is where we're going to lead this insurrection against Rome, and we're going to have the kingdom back. Jesus, of course, tells him to put away his sword on that occasion. In Acts, after the crucifixion, after the resurrection, the disciples say, "Okay." I think we're starting to get it. So now are you going to restore the kingdom? And Jesus said, it's not for you to know the times and the seasons. In other words, not yet. It's coming, but not yet. And we're still in that not yet. We're still waiting. But it's close. It's getting really close. And Chuck Miserable concludes, it says, the time that the fasts become feasts, as we said a moment ago. So, we're going to jump into chapter 11. Now, in regard to this chapter, again, chapter this: says this, the predictions of this chapter were given long after the completion of the temple of Zerubbabel. So we've jumped forward a number of years since those opening visions and address concerns in the more distant future from the prophet. There is to be a scattering of the people even after the time of Zechariah. And that's what we're going to see laid out for us now. Now this would have been quite a a shocking thing for Zechariah and the people at that time to hear. They've just got back in the land. Have you ever been in a situation where you think, you've just gone through a difficult time and you think, I'm glad it's over. And then suddenly the bottom gives way and you find there's something worse. You haven't got to the end of that journey that you were on. You thought you were. Well, this is exactly what Israel are going through at this moment. And Zechariah, or the Lord through Zechariah, reveals to the people that yes, they're back in the land, but there's more to come. And we'll look at that as we go through this. So following on from the previous chapters, if you remember in chapter 10, if you missed it, review it, you see there that there's a lot of blessings that are promised upon the nation of Israel. The Lord promised to bless their land and to prosper them to restore them. And so the question now is, well, when is that going to happen? Because they're kind of like in this, this limbo at the moment. They know the blessing is coming, but when is it coming? How long is Israel going to have to wait? Chachmizla uh, again makes this comment. He says, this chapter explains why the blessings and the promises of the previous chapter are in abeyance. So that question, how long until the blessings come? This chapter is going to start to give us that answer for Israel. For by rejecting their true shepherd Messiah at his first advent, they will experience rejection themselves. So what we're going to see here foretold is that Israel will reject the Messiah when he comes. As a result of that, they will be rejected. Climaxing in their accepting of the false shepherd, in the time of their greatest woe, the false shepherd being who you and I typically refer to as Antichrist. They reject Jesus, the Messiah, but they're going to accept Antichrist. There are a number of desolations that Zechariah could be speaking of in this chapter, both past from this point and also in the future. But the context suggests that the desolation that we're going to be talking about and looking at was the one in AD 70 by the Romans. That seems to be what is in view here. So let's go into the text and we'll see what we see. So verse 1 of Zechariah chapter 11. Open thy doors, O Lebanon, that the fire may devour thy cedars. Howl, fir tree, for the cedar is fallen because the mighty are spoiled. How, all ye oaks of Bashan, for the forest of the vintage is come down. There is a voice of the howling of the shepherds for their glory is spoiled. A voice of the roaring of young lions, for the pride of Jordan is spoiled. Okay, what does that mean? Right. Cedars from Lebanon were used in the construction of the temple. Okay, Solomon specifically had cedars floated down and they used those in the construction of the temple. So that's the the idea of the reference. These things that have been used uh, in the, the building and making the... The temple, this wonderful spectacle that it became. Bashan, bastion, you may be familiar, is its place in northern Israel. And what we see really by this reference is that God's judgment fell on the land, coming from the north and coming down. Okay, and That's how it occurred, in fact, almost every time in Israel's history. With the Babylonians, it was that way. And with the Romans, again, the same in AD 70. So really, this is all speaking of that uh, judgment that God is going to bring, and it's going to come from the north, from, from up from Lebanon, where the cedars came from. It's going to come down into Bashan, into northern Israel, come down through the Jordan. And, and notice the reference here to the howling of the shepherds. Albert Barnes, in his commentary, says this, There is one chorus of desolation, the mighty and the lowly, the shepherds and the young lions. What is at other times opposed is joined in one wailing. So you got the the lions, which typically would have been a threat, and the shepherds, which should have been there to protect. They're both in the situation that because of this uh, invasion, because of this desolation that's coming, they're both wailing. And he says the he says the pride of Jordan are the stately oaks on its banks, which shroud it from sight until you reach its edges, and which after the captivity of the ten tribes became the haunt of lions and their chief abode in Palestine. The lion lingered there even to the close of the 12th century. Historically, we know that this area was infested by lions for quite some time. In fact, if you go to the British Museum, you'll find there in the uh, the Assyrian room, There's lots of reliefs on the wall, um, these carvings, which depict lions. And there's a note there saying it was the sport of kings to go and hunt lions. And if you look carefully, you'll realize they've probably got that wrong because they're not hunting lions. They're trying to exterminate a real pest problem. It's very clear from the reliefs. You just look at it. It wasn't just a sport. Uh, They are infested with lions. And that's exactly what we're told about in the book of Kings. Nevertheless, this is what those references in the first three verses speak to. Jeremiah makes this statement though he says howl ye shepherds and cry and wallow yourself in the ashes very similar wording that jeremiah used before the babylonian captivity how wallow yourself in the ashes ye principal of the flock for the days of your slaughter and of your disp- uh, dispersions are accomplished and you shall fall like a pleasant vessel and the shepherds shall have no way to flee nor the principal of the flock to escape a voice of the cry of the shepherds and a howling of the principal of the flock shall be heard for the lord has spoiled their pasture okay jeremiah warned in advance of the babylonian captivity of what was going to happen and specifically mentions these shepherds speaking of those that had care over israel the leaders of the nation and then mentioned here specifically as zechariah then uses in the same context warning of another Threat, another invasion, another period of desolation that's going to come upon Israel and Jerusalem. And so Zechariah now warns the same thing in advance that Jeremiah did, and they both use the same kind of wording. Verse four: Thus says the Lord my God, Feed the flock of the slaughter. Interesting expression. Whose possessors, slay, whose possessors, slay them and hold themselves not guilty, and they that sell them say, Blessed be the Lord, for I am rich. And their own shepherds pity them not. Okay, what does this mean? Well, who is being instructed? That's the first question we need to uh, answer here. Who is the one that's being instructed by God to feed this flock? And why feed them in the first place if they're just destined for slaughter anyway? So notice verse 4 again. Thus says the Lord, my God, feed the flock of the slaughter. So who is that an instruction to? We'll come to that in a second. But note the attitude of the possessors here. It says, whose possessors slay them and hold themselves not guilty. So speaking of those that are going to come upon Israel that don't have any conscience regarding what they're doing, well, very much like the Assyrians, the Babylonians in the past, what's coming, we're told those that do it, they won't be concerned, they won't show compassion. And they that sell them say, blessed be the Lord, for I am rich, and their own shepherds Pity them not. It's very much like it was in the time of the judges. You read in Judges 21, 25 and elsewhere that everybody did what was right in their own eyes. And Israel had got to this point. This is speaking now not just of Zechariah's day, but looking forward to the time that Jesus came. And you think the way that the the Jewish leadership was there. You think of Jesus' words. You know, he was really harsh in speaking to the leadership because of the way they treated people. You know, they didn't care about uh, people's p- p- particular situations. They just wanted the money to be given to the temple and so on. Very, very similar kind of situation. This is being foretold. So those shepherds who should have had care over them had shown no concern. Again, their own shepherds pity them not. Let's just come back to that question then. So who's being instructed by God to feed this flock? James Kaufman in his commentary says this, the shepherd depicted by Zechariah can only be the Messiah. The reason they were called the flock of slaughter sprang from the fact that slaughter was their irrevocable irrevocable destiny. Just so long as the Jews preferred their own evil shepherds to the true one, Zechariah's instruction here to feed the flock refers to Christ himself coming into the ranks of the chosen people, the Jews, to instruct and lead them in the paths of righteousness. Last of all, God sent his son in the hope of averting their self-motivated dash to destruction. Do you remember the parable Jesus gives in Luke 20, 13-15? This parable of this this land that he has people look after and he sends prophets, uh, they're killed. Eventually he sends his own son. Of course, it's a picture of the prophets that Jesus sent. They were murdered, they were killed, and then finally God sends Jesus to his people Israel. And he also is killed. So the question then, why then did Jesus come to feed Israel, feed the flock, if they were destined to slaughter in the first place? Well, I think part of the answer for that can be found in Isaiah In Isaiah chapter 5, verses 3 through 7, we read this, And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge, I pray thee, betwixt me and my vineyard, what could have been done more to my vineyard? God is saying, there's nothing more I could have done to care for you, to look after you, to tend for you, to, to provide for you. What more could have been done to my vineyard that I have not done in it? Wherefore, when I looked that it should bring forth grapes, it brought forth wild grapes." And now go to, I'll tell you what I'll do to my vineyard. I'll take away the hedge thereof, and it shall be eaten up, and break down the wall thereof, and it shall be trodden down. And I will lay it waste, and it shall not be pruned nor dig, but there shall come up briars and thorns. I will also command the clouds that they rain, no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah his pleasant plant. And he looked for judgment, but behold, oppression. For righteousness, but behold, a cry. God can never be accused of not giving Israel the opportunities to repent and to seek him and to walk with him. Verse 6 goes on, Zechariah 11 says, For I will no more pity the inhabitants of the land. In other words, enough is enough, saith the Lord. But lo, I will deliver the men, every one, into his neighbor's hand and into the hand of his king. Speaking about the nations around Israel. And they shall smite the land, and out of their hand I will not deliver them. What an incredible prophetic statement this is. And we have seen that played out through history. You see, God has made a covenant with Israel to keep the Gentile nations restrained so long as Israel walked with God. But the warning was that if they forsook that covenant, God would forsake them. We read about that in Leviticus 18 Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 26 to 31, and Deuteronomy 28, the whole chapter really is given over to that theme, that if Israel walked with the Lord, there would be blessing. But if they didn't, God would allow their enemies to have rule over them and they'd be cast out of their land. Bear with me, I just want to read to you that passage from Deuteronomy because I think it's so applicable to Deuteronomy chapter 4. If you want to turn with me, you can. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 26 to 31. And we read this, and I call heaven and earth to witness against you this day that you shall soon utterly perish from off the land whereinto you go, uh, you go over Jordan to possess it. You shall not prolong your days upon it, but shall be, uh, but shall utterly be destroyed. And the Lord shall scatter you among the nations. I mean, what incredible prophecy this is! Given that this is some roughly 14, 1,500 years before Jesus comes, no, three and a half thousand years ago. And we've seen this fulfilled to the letter. And you shall be left few in number among the heathen, whether the Lord has led you, and there you shall serve God's the work of men's hands, the word of the stone, and neither uh, which neither see nor hear nor eat nor smell. But if and notice this, this is why I wanted to read this. But if from thence thou shalt seek the Lord thy God, thou shalt find him if thou seek him with all thy, uh, with all thy heart and with all thy soul. When thou art in tribulation, and all these things are come upon thee, even in the latter days, days in which we're living in, if thou turn to the Lord thy God, thou shalt be obedient unto his voice. For the Lord thy God is a merciful God. He will not forsake thee, neither destroy thee, nor forget the covenant of thy fathers which he swore unto them. I wanted to read that because there are so many within the Christian church that think that these kind of references say that God has finished with Israel that they blew it, that the Muslims believe that God had chosen Israel, but because of their disobedience, they lost all those benefits and promises, and now they are just fit for the slaughter, effectively. Sadly, the Catholic Church adopted that kind of mindset, or they, they had that kind of mindset, and it kind of pervaded most of the Protestant churches as well but we just read there that God says that he's not going to completely destroy them that if they turn to him he will restore them and this is exactly what we're looking at this is what all these promises are about but here verse 6 of Zechariah 11 God is saying no I'm be- I'm going to hand you over to these gentile nations because you didn't walk with me just as he said Chuck Misler says this, How accurately this portrays the Roman invasion and the disasters of the first and the late first and second centuries and destructive measures of the Romans used to crush the Jewish state. Over one million Jews perished in the fall of Jerusalem and half a million more died during the course of the war and siege. And of course we know through history. How many more? Through the time of the Ottoman Empire and through uh, the time after the First World War. And of course, they're back in their land from 1948, but still under constant threat. Verse 7, then we get this statement, I will feed the flock of slaughter, even you, O poor of the flock. So this promise that the Messiah is going to come, he's going to feed his people, regardless of the fact that they're not going to listen. Just as Jesus came, he talked. He revealed himself to the nation, and they rejected him. And then we have this statement, I took unto me two staves, the one I called beauty, the other I called bands, and I fed the flock. That that may be kind of clunky in our English, the way it's translated for us, but think of Psalm 23, thy rod and thy staff, they comfort thee. That's what we're talking about. The the idea, the idiom here is of a shepherd, and the rod and the staff are used. Just pulling from one commentary here, uh, beauty... Uh, The idea, the word uh, here is is the same root as we get Naomi from. Uh, uh, And uh, it's like a shepherd's crook. It's used to keep sheep in line. In other words, it speaks of God's grace. Just keeping them on the right track. Just as you would with the sheep. You just keep them from from stepping out of the way, stepping into harm's way. Bans Again, it's a word that has to do with making a covenant, or like, it's you a, like it's a heavy stick. It's used to fight off wild animals and those that were trying to steal the sheep. So one is to protect the sheep, one, one, so one is to keep the sheep on, on track, and the other is to protect them from outside attack. So that's the idea of these things that are being brought into this picture here. Verse 8 goes on, Three shepherds also I cut off in one month, and my soul loathed them, and their soul also abhorred me. So prophetically speaking, of what's to come. Now, I'll be honest with you, there's over about 40 different interpretations of this verse, and they're all a bit, don't quite satisfy. Uh, Adam Clark says this, he says, Taking this literally, some think the three shepherds mean the three Maccabees, Judas, Jonathan, and Simon. Others, the three wicked high priests, Jason, Archimus, and uh, Menelaus, uh, Others, the three last princes of the Asmonean race, Alexander, Hyrcanus, and Antiochus. Okay, so there's all sorts of ideas about who this means. Uh, Chuck Missler postulates that it could refer to the leaders at the time of Christ, but it's speaking of these three shepherds being cut off in one month in a very short space of time. Now, I don't know, I'm just going to throw this out there, but looking at what comes in a while, I wonder whether these three shepherds, because clearly the context is those that have rule over the nation. I wonder whether it's referring to those offices that God instituted in the land, that of... Prophet, priest, and king. Those were the offices that God had instituted to look after to rule over the people. And effectively, all of them were cut off. In AD 70, everything's cut off in one go. I mean, there is no opportunity for a king to rule the land if they're out of the land. Prophets effectively are cut off. The priests can't sacrifice. There's no temple anymore. So I just leave that there. Maybe I'll let you think that through. But I would just consider God's timing in all of these things. Because the Assyrians tried to destroy Jerusalem, God prevented it. They were a huge army. They conquered everything. In fact, they boasted they'd done it That, But God did allow the Babylonians to destroy Jerusalem to fulfill his purposes in his prophetic plan. But then the Persians couldn't destroy. The Greeks under Alexander the Great... Again, conquered everything else, but they didn't destroy Jerusalem. The Seleucid empires that follow all tried and couldn't destroy. And um, Antiochus Epiphanes has to go in 167 BC, but doesn't destroy Jerusalem. But then God did allow the Romans to fulfill his plan and purposes by allowing them to destroy the city in AD 70. So Jerusalem seems to be very much in God's hands. When God allows it, God's enemies can be used of God to bring judgment upon it. But when God protects it, no one can do anything against it. Verse 9. Then said I, I will not feed you. That he dieth, let him die. And that is to be cut off, let him be cut off. And let the rest eat everyone, the flesh of another. And he's talking about the desperate situation they would find themselves in, in the days that were to come. And I took my staff, even beauty... And cut it asunder, that I might break my covenant which I had made with all the people. All this causes the replacement theologians to get excited. Oh, see, God broke his covenant with Israel. No. And yes. There are some covenants that are unconditional. The covenant that God made with Abraham was unconditional. The covenant that God made with David was unconditional. There will be a monarchy, the land will always belong to the people of Israel. But in terms of the blessings that were come upon them, the Mosaic covenant, the things that came under the law, the promise that God would keep the Gentile nations at bay if they walked with him, well, the people broke that themselves. And so God effectively says, Well, I'm gonna break this covenant. You've you've not walked according to the terms of our agreement, that if I would I would bless you if you walk with me. Therefore, I'm going to break my part of that agreement too. And I will allow the Gentile nations to come upon you. Notice, and it was broken in that day, and so the poor of the flock that waited upon me that knew that it was the word of the Lord. You see, the righteous recognized, even in Jeremiah's time and subsequently in Zechariah here, they recognized that God was just in doing what he was doing. By the way, this is the first of these two sticks, if you like, this rod, this staff um, that I mentioned, that are now being broken. Symbolically uh, and beauty here again. Just to again, this is the idea of the shepherd's crook to keep them in line. God will no longer keep Israel in line, but rather hand them over to their enemies. That's what's being said. You know, in First Corinthians chapter four, uh, sorry, sorry, chapter five, verses four and five, we have this account of this individual who is indulged in this immoral relationship. And Paul, in writing to the church at Corinth, says something that many find quite staggering. He says, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together in my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, to deliver such a one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Paul says, effectively, put that one out of the church. Don't have anything to do with him. Hand him over to Satan. Let him go and live the life that he thinks he wants to live. And you know what he's going to find? That it is utterly empty. The reason Paul says to do this is that this is grace. You know, so many times Christians veer away from walking with the Lord. But if you have been truly and genuinely saved, washed by the blood of Jesus Christ, if the Holy Spirit is residing in you, you can play around with the world for a while, but you will never be happy. You'll never be satisfied. You'll never have that joy that we were speaking of earlier. And that's why we have those lines in Scripture, such as, restore unto me the joy of my salvation. People come to that place of going, Lord, I'm so sorry, bring me back. And we'll see all this this idea of repentance coming through in the remainder of this study. People coming to that place of realizing they've got it horribly wrong. And repenting and seeking the Lord. It's a great example in the New Testament that God allows these things sometimes to come upon us so that we get back with him. He loves us too much to let us go. Verse 12, And if I said unto them, If you think it good, give me my price, and if not, forbear. So they weighed for my price, thirty pieces of silver. And the Lord said unto me, cast it unto the potter, and a goodly price that I was prized at of them. And I took the 30 pieces of silver and cast them to the potter in the house of the Lord. Now you probably straight away recognize this. Because in the New Testament, this is applied to that which Judas did. So the whole of this is looking to that time, Jesus' first advent. It's an incredible prophecy given some 500 years before the event, and there's some real specific details in here. Firstly, as I said, 500 years beforehand, but the details include the exact amount the Messiah would be betrayed for. I mean, you can't guess that. Not 500 years before an event even taking place. That the amount was to be paid specifically in silver, and I'll explain why that in a moment. That the transaction took place in the temple. We're given the location of it. That the coins were then cast on the floor. And it's the potter that ends up with the money. Incredible detail in these two verses from Zechariah. In Matthew 27, we read this. Then Judas, which had betrayed him, when he saw that he was condemned, repented himself and bought again the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned in that I have betrayed the innocent blood. Interesting, isn't it? Even Judas Again, we know that Satan effectively indwelt him, from what we're told. And he makes this statement that Jesus was innocent. He betrayed innocent blood. And they said, what is that to us? These is the Jewish leaders, indifferent. What is that to us? See thou of that. In other words, your problem. And he cast down the pieces of silver in the temple. So he throws it down before these priests and went and hanged himself. Now the priests have got a real problem. Because they can't just take blood money, which this was, and put it into the treasury. There was laws about that for them. And the chief priests took the silver coins and said it is not lawful for to put them into the treasury because it is the price of blood. And they took counsel, so they go to their legal team. What can we do? And brought with them the pot, and brought with them the potter's field to bury strangers in. Now they were allowed to pay for things to anticipate expenses that would occur for other things. So they recognize that when strangers came into Jerusalem that died and they didn't have anybody to look after them and bury them, they'd have to have somewhere to bury them. Typically, it would be the family's responsibility. But for strangers, who's going to bury them? So they buy this field and they say, well, this field can now be used to bury strangers. In other words, if the money's not being put into the temple fund in the treasury. It's been used for something else. And that kind of satisfies this legal thing. Wherefore, that field was called the field of blood unto this day. Then was it fulfilled that which was spoken by Jeremy the prophet, or Jeremiah the prophet, I'll explain that in a moment, saying, and they took the 30 pieces of silver, the price of him that was valued, whom they of the children of Israel did value. And they gave them the potter's field as the Lord appointed me. Firstly, the prophecy is given by Zechariah. And yet here in Matthew's gospel it said that it was spoken by Jeremiah. Well, don't get hung up on this. Some people think, oh, there's an error, there's a mistake. No, no, not at all. It was on the scroll that started with Jeremiah. So it was typically referred to as Jeremiah. It was in the this long scroll. Zechariah was part of that, but it started with Jeremiah. Jeremiah being one of the major prophets. So all of those books that followed were considered part of the scroll of Jeremiah. But notice also, specifically, it doesn't say that it was written by Jeremiah. It says it was spoken by Jeremiah. So there's nothing to say that Jeremiah didn't actually declare this at some point anyway. So we don't need to get too worried about that. But there's some significance in the details. Firstly, silver is associated with blood, with redemption. Those two ideas are linked together in numerous passages in the Old Testament. The tabernacle rested on sockets of silver. Our salvation rests on the blood of Christ. We are the building that Christ is building, that tabernacle indwelt by the Holy Spirit. In in the Old Testament, the tabernacle of God's presence resided there. Yeah? Well, for now, we are that tabernacle, that house that God is building. Just as the tabernacle rested on those sockets of silver, so our salvation rests on the blood of Christ. And that which was purchased by the silver, do you remember this field, was a field of broken pottery pieces. Broken pottery just filling this field. This is a potter's field. Christ, we're given this picture in the New Testament, purchased the whole field to obtain broken vessels that will be redeemed by his grace. It's a lovely picture the more you think about this. And that 30 pieces of silver was the price typically of a slave. We see that next as 21 verse 32. In 2 Corinthians we read, For he has made him to be sin for us. Jesus became a slave. Jesus became a sin. Who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Very quickly, I just want to take you back to Hosea. We went through this some months ago now. But in Hosea chapter 3, one of the most amazing chapters of the Bible, five verses, okay? We spent the whole morning going through those five verses. It's an amazing, wonderful chapter. We get this picture that Hosea's wife has effectively been sold into prostitution. And so Hosea goes and purchases back his wife. She's become effectively fit for nothing, and she's being auctioned off in this kind of public arena. And anybody can bid for her. Anybody can buy her. Humiliating situation. It really speaks of us. The way that we were given over to sin. And so we read, So I bought her to me for 15 pieces of silver and for a homer of barley and for half a homer of barley. So we're given the exact amount the homer so that Hosea puts up to purchase his wife. Now this word that's used in the Hebrew here, It specifically denotes a purchase as from another. That's what he's doing. Goma, as I said, had become a slave. Her life was no longer her own. And in seeking to gain her life, she thought she was going to go have all the fun she wanted. She'd lost it. So much like our own lives. Going after things of the world, we lose it. Sin doesn't give us what it promises. Notice again, so I bought her. Now, as I said, Goma, his wife, is put up at auction. There were three ways that one could become a slave. By conquest, by birth, be born into slavery, or by debt. Actually, we are slaves by all three. We've been conquered, effectively, by Satan, by sin. We're born into this family of Adam, and we have this debt because of this sin. Slaves also were sold naked. They had nothing, and in a sense, it speaks of us. According to Exodus 21-32, as I said, the price for a slave was 30 shekels of silver. And so when we look at the amount that we're told back in Hosea, that Hosea pays to purchase his own wife back, we're given the specific details. 15 shekels of silver, first of all. That's only half the required price, though. So then he adds one and a half homers of barley. I'll let you read this. It'll be in the notes. Uh, I'm going to read it all now. But Kyle and Dillage in their commentary make the point that the remaining amount that was given made up exactly the remainder to get us up to 30 shekels worth of silver. Okay, so what we find is that the price was paid in full. If Hosea had possessed 30 shekels of silver, no doubt he'd have paid out of the shekels of silver. But he didn't. He paid out of everything. He just literally, everything he had, he gave to purchase his wife back. Just as Christ has done for us. He gave everything. He gave his life to purchase us. It's a wonderful chapter. Again, just read Hosea chapter 3 sometime. and Just spend a few moments studying it. Go back and review the study online. It was just an incredible chapter. Christ again paid the price for Israel's and our redemption in full. On the cross, he cried out to Telestai. That Greek word, it means paid in full. He gave all that he had. Philippians tells us, let this mind be in you, which also was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. Jesus sold for the price of a slave, for 30 pieces of silver. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient even to death, even the death of the cross. So verse 14 goes on. Now we have the second of our sticks, if you like, the rod, the staff. Okay? So then I cut asunder my other staff, even bands, that I might break the brotherhood between Judah and Israel. Now again, this, again, as we said, this bands, referring to the idea is this stick he used to fight off animals or uh, any other threats. And one thing the Lord does when we are not walking with him is to take away our peace. In contrast, Isaiah 26, three says, Thou will keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. That's our choice. It's a choice we can make every single day. If we want to walk with the Lord, the Lord promises to keep us in perfect peace, whatever may come. But if we don't, we'll beware, because the Lord will allow things of this world, to take away your peace. It's breaking that that staff, if you like. Verse 15, And the Lord said unto me, Take unto thee yet the instruments of a foolish shepherd, for lo, I will raise up a shepherd in the land. Notice, God says, I'm going to raise up a shepherd in the land, which shall not visit those that be cut off. Not a good shepherd then. Neither shall seek the young one. Doesn't care about old or young, nor heal that is broken, nor feed that that stand is still. Doesn't sound a particularly good shepherd, does he? But he shall eat the flesh of the fat and tear their claws in pieces. So Zechariah here speaks of another shepherd who is going to come, who is not going to care for the sheep, but instead will seek to devour the sheep. And then verse 17 goes on, Woe to the idle shepherd. Now here we are given... Another introduction to Antichrist. This is another one of the titles for him, the idle shepherd, that leaveth the flock. But look at the details we're told. The sword shall be upon his arm and upon his right eye. His arm shall be cleaned right up and his right eye shall be utterly destroyed. This is interesting. We'll come back to that in a second. But notice what John 5, 43 says. I am coming my father's name and you receive me not. This is exactly what this passage is telling us. That Jesus comes as a shepherd to teach, to care for the sheep and they reject him. Another shepherd comes, this idle shepherd. If another should come in his own name, him you will receive. Jesus just reiterating exactly what Zechariah is saying here. But notice... What we're told here. In fact, let me just read on in John, uh, chapter 10. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that entereth not by the door into the sheepfold, uh, into the sheepfold, but climbeth up some of the way, the same as a thief and a robber. But he that entereth in by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the porter openeth, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calleth his own sheep by name, and leadeth them out. And when he putteth forth his own sheep, he goeth before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger will they not follow, will flee from him, for they know not the voice of strangers. This parable spoke Jesus unto them, but they understood not what, uh, what things they which uh, they were which he spoke unto them. Then said Jesus unto the game, Verily, verily, I say unto you, I am the door of the sheep. All that ever came before me are thieves and robbers, and the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. By me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved, and shall go in and out and find pasture. The thief cometh not but for to steal and to kill and to destroy. Again, is exactly what Antichrist will do. I am come that they may have life, and they might have, and might have it more abundantly. I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. That's exactly what Jesus did. But he that is a hireling and not the shepherd whose own sheep not, who whose own the sheep are not seeth the wolf coming and leaveth the sheep and fleeth, and the wolf catches them and scattereth the sheep. The hireling fleeth because he is a hireling and careth not for the sheep. so again, this statement about this idle shepherd, antichrist who is going to come seeking to destroy the sheep well interestingly revelation thirteen thirteen tells us that Antichrist is going to receive a fatal wound. In his head, but he's going to rise again. And there's debates. Some say, "Well, does he really die, or is he just faking it? it?" Doesn't really matter because the world thinks that he's dead, and then he rises again, whether really or not. It doesn't matter because everybody thinks that this is a real uh, situation, and the world follow after him. But does this verse here in Zechariah 11: 17 describe the effects of the injury he sustained? Now, this is quite interesting because. It's provocative that in his hand or arm and forehead are the places that he's affected. It's precisely the place that his followers will receive a mark in the right hand and in the forehead. This verse tells us that as a result of this injury that he sustains, those are the two places. So just leave that with you. It's quite provocative that maybe there's a a hint of what will come. Don't worry, the church will be out of here before this point anyway. But still fascinating. Okay, we're just going to run through chapter 12. It's not going to take us long. A lot of this text, but I just want to read these things. The burden of the word of the Lord for Israel, saith the Lord, which stretches forth the heavens and layeth the foundation of the earth and formeth the spirit of man within him. Okay, That's a pretty clear statement. This is God speaking. Behold, I make Jerusalem a cup of trembling unto all the people round about. That's all the nations around Israel. When they shall be in the siege, both against Judah and against Jerusalem. The nations around them are going to gang up on Israel. This is yet to come. And in that day, we can see that expression a number of times, I will make Jerusalem a burdensome stone for all people. All the people themselves um, with it shall be cut in pieces, That all the people of the earth be gathered together against it. I'd encourage you to get a copy of this book by Dave Hunt called A Cup of Trembling. Dave Hunt just goes through. I mean, you can see how big and thick the book is. It's a great book. And he just speaks about the problem of Jerusalem to the world. I mean, it really is quite staggering. Jerusalem is mentioned over 800 times in the Bible. Jews, Muslims, Christians, specifically Catholics, have all laid claim to this ancient city. That's what the Crusades were all about and so on. It's a constant source of world attention and it divides opinion like no other city on earth. Some of the most heated debates I've got in uh, with people who have been on the subject of Israel and specifically on Jerusalem. Do you remember the controversy when Donald Trump wanted to move the American embassy to the capital city of Israel, which was Jerusalem? Uh, Could you think of another city on planet earth that the nation it was in weren't allowed to say which was their capital? And yet, for the Jews, they were told, no, you can't choose your own capital. We'll choose it for you. Crazy situation. And all the contention that suddenly sparked. As Donald Trump says, no, in fact, it wasn't Trump that came up with it. It was all president before president before. They all said they were going to move the embassy, and none of them did it. Trump was the only one that had the courage to do that. believe that God placed him there, if for no other reason for them than specifically for that. Because it happened on a specific day, a specific time. It was already part of God's plan. Significantly, Jerusalem has become all that God said it would be. But the most overlooked claim in regard to Jerusalem is that God says it's his city. Never lose sight of that. He will ultimately cut in pieces all the nations of the earth that gather themselves together against it. At some point in the future, a confederacy of nations will lay siege to Judah and Jerusalem. With the intent of destroying the Jews, and we're told, verse four, in that day, uh, and by the way, that occurs twenty times in Zechariah, six times in this chapter alone, saith the Lord, that I will smite every horse with astonishment, and his rider with madness, and I will open mine eyes upon the house of Judah, and will smite every horse with the people, uh, of the people with blindness, and the governors of Judah shall say in their heart, the inhabitants of Jerusalem shall be my strength in the Lord. Of hosts their God, this expression again in that day is looking specifically at the the day of the Lord, but uh, denotatively it's referring to this climactic battle that is going to take place as the nations of the world yet future will all join together and march against Jerusalem with the intent of getting rid of the Jews in that day. I will make the governors of Judah like a hearth of fire among the wood, and like a torch of fire in a sheaf. And they shall devour all the people round about, on the right hand and on the left. And Jerusalem shall be inhabited again in her own place, even in Jerusalem. See, here is God's promise to his people to protect them and to give them victory over their enemies. You all know history. You know how God has done this in the past. The Lord also shall save the tents of Judah first. That the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem do not magnify themselves against Judah. So God is going to do this incredible work of saving Israel from this combined attack by the nations of this earth. And again, some scriptures there. These slides will be up online later. You can look at them. <clears throat> you know, we've seen God defend Jerusalem on a number of occasions in history, as we've already said against the Assyrians, against Alexander 1948 and 1967. And God, again, is going to intervene in history to preserve his people and the city. In verse 10, we go on. And I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplications. And they shall look upon me whom they have pierced, and they shall mourn for him as one mourns for his only son, and shall be in bitterness for him as one that is in bitterness for his firstborn. Imagine losing a child. Some of you may know that experience firsthand. It's horrible. It cuts like nothing else. That's the kind of pain that God is saying Israel is going to experience when they suddenly realize that Jesus was their Messiah. You see, Israel's national repentance that is being spoken of here is going to lead to national restoration they are going to recognize Yeshua as their Messiah. When is it going to occur? Hosea, chapter 5, verse 15, says, I will go and return to my place. It's an interesting statement on its own. How can God return to his place unless he's left his place? Well, of course, we know that Jesus left heaven, but also returned. I will go and return to my place till they acknowledge their offense and seek my face. When is it going to happen? In their affliction They will seek me early or earnestly. So the context that is in Hosea 15 is speaking of the Assyrian invasion, but prophetically we see how this is going to be played out. They will seek God in the midst of that affliction. Again, when did God leave his place, as we said a moment ago, in the incarnation? And it will be the hand of the Assyrian, another title of Antichrist, by the way, used in Isaiah and elsewhere. It will be a hand of Antichrist that will bring this great affliction upon the Jews. And it will cause Israel to seek God earnestly. In Hosea chapter 6, it goes on and says, Come, let us return unto the Lord, for he has torn us, and he will heal us, he has smitten, he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us, and in the third day, he will raise us up, that we may live in his sight. Go review the study in Hosea 6 if you want to get into that more. It's an incredible statement in itself. But it's just speaking of this national return. In Acts chapter 15, the New Testament, there's a council meeting that takes place in Jerusalem, and the question's asked, what about the Jews? And how does this work now with the Gentiles coming in and so on? And we read this, after they had held their peace, James answered and said, men and brethren, listen to me, hearken to me. Simeon, Simon Peter, has declared how God at the first did visit the Gentiles. Notice this, how at the first... Okay, so the first thing, God did visit the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. It's pretty really clear. God has come to visit the Gentiles, it's you and I, unless you're a Jew here this morning, but for the Gentiles, to visit the Gentiles, to take out a people of his name. And to disagree the words of the prophets as it is written, notice this, after this I will return and build again the tabernacle of David, which is fallen down, and I will build again the ruins thereof, and I will set it up. So we know from this verse that this restoration of Israel, the full proper restoration, will not occur until after God has brought the Gentiles in. We know from Luke 19 that Israel as a nation were blinded because they rejected their Messiah. And Very much the theme of these two chapters we're looking at this morning. But when will that blindness be removed? Well, Romans 11.25 tells us that we shouldn't be ignorant. I wouldn't, wouldn't, brethren, you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own conceits, that blindness in part, because some Jews believe, but the rest of the nation didn't as a whole, blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles become in. So another verse that tells us that Israel are blinded, that these things are going to come upon them until all the Gentiles have been brought in. So when will the fullness of the Gentiles be come in? Some think it will be the rapture, but the problem with that is that there will be Gentiles that continue coming in or are saved during the first part of the tribulation, after the church is gone, after we've been taken back to be with the Lord in heaven, as John 14 clearly tells us. I go to prepare a place for you. I'll come again and receive you to myself. That's what Jesus said. We'll be taken out of the way before God's wrath is poured out on this earth. But after we're gone, many people that you've spoken to, that you've shared the gospel with, they're suddenly going to go, well, those Christians were right. And they'll realize that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And they'll put their faith and their trust in him. So even during the first part of the tribulation, Gentiles will be saved. And Israel's blindness is not lifted at the time of the rapture. That's clear from Scripture. In fact, we know from John 5.43 that Israel are actually going to accept Antichrist And staying in spiritual blindness at least for the first three and a half years of the tribulation. So if we ask the other side of the question, when is the fullness of the Gentiles come in? Because that's when Israel's blindness will be lifted. When are the last Gentiles saved? Revelation 15 tells, tells us, I saw another sign in heaven, and great and marvelous. Seven angels having the seven last plagues, for in them is filled up the wrath of God. And I saw, as it were, a sea of glass mingled with fire and them that had gotten the victory over the beast, and over his image and over his mark. Notice we talked about that earlier, the image and the mark and so on. And over the number of his name, stand on the sea of glass, having the harps of God. Now seemingly from this point in the tribulation, this is after the three and a half year point, at some point not long after, no one is saved from what we read in Revelation. This is the last of the Gentiles to be brought in which means, surely this is the point that Israel's eyes will be opened. When will Israel's blindness be removed? Again, when they're in affliction. A verse we read from Hosea 5.15. The case from just after the midpoint of the tribulation. If you look at it, hopefully that makes it clear. The last of the Gentiles to be saved will be some point after the midpoint of the tribulation. It coincides that at this point, we're told this is when Israel's blindness will also be lifted. Both things happen at the same time. The last, the Gentiles will be brought in. Israel's eyes will be opened, and we get to this verse of Zechariah that we've been looking at. That God's going to pour upon the house of David, and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit of grace and supplications. They're going to look upon me whom they have pierced. Now, I just want to just share this with you because this is just wonderful. It's a bit of fun. This is just the first part of that verse. That's the same thing in Hebrew. I don't know if any of you read Hebrew. I don't read Hebrew, but I can recognize the characters. I know it a little. There's two letters in the middle of that verse that are untranslated. We don't have them translated. Okay. It fits in at that point there. Okay. So the the text is, and they shall look upon me. And we've got these two characters whom they have pierced and they shall mourn. Now, if you know anything about Hebrew, you might recognize those two characters as an Aleph and a Tau. If we were to transliterate them into English, it would be an A and a Z. If we were to put it into Greek, it would be an Alpha and an Omega. So if we were to read that with the kind of the Greek mindset, we'd read it this way. They will look upon me, the Alpha and the Omega, whom they have pierced. Isn't that wonderful? That's what the Jews will do. They will realize that Jesus, the Alpha and the Omega, is their Messiah. Okay, just a couple of verses left, but I just want to give you a little anecdote. Just to try and hopefully set the scene for this most of you know i travel and commute to work and um, sometimes i find myself waiting at stations for trains to come in and there's a number there of coffee shops that you can go and sit down and buy yourself a, a cup of coffee and there's a particular coffee shop they do these really lovely packs of uh ginger biscuits i really really like ginger biscuits and uh, there's a particular pack of four biscuits so i got this pack and uh, I sat down with my coffee, and uh, as always, it's, there's not a lot of room in these places. And a gentleman came in, smartly dressed as well, was, uh, wearing a suit, and with a newspaper, and he put his newspaper down, and he had his cup of coffee, and uh, so he kind of just nodded as you do, kind of, you know, hello, hello, and just ignore each other after that as you do. And then um, he leaned, leaned across, and he opened my packet of biscuits and took a biscuit out. Yeah, that was my reaction too. So I thought, okay, well, what would he do? Well, being British, you know, he said nothing. So I just reached across and took my biscuit out. And ate my biscuit. And then he reached across and took another one out. And ate the biscuit. I was quite indignant, but uh, I thought, I'm not, I'm not going to say anything. So then I reached across and I took the last of the biscuits out. And I ate my biscuit, feeling at least some sort of justification that I'd made my point. Anyway, so we, we carried on and we finished our drinks. And then this gentleman got up to leave and he got up he took his paper and walked off and there was my packet of biscuits. <laughs> <laughs> Have you ever been in a situation where you've got something completely wrong? I say that because I really want you to understand as best as we can the import of these last few verses of the chapter. Verse 11 says, in that day there shall be a great morning in Jerusalem, as the morning of Rimon in the valley of Megiddon. The morning in Jerusalem will be on account of the acknowledgement of Israel's national sin. They will realize that they got it horribly wrong. For 2,000 years they've rejected Jesus. And they're going to be brought face to face with that moment, that feeling you had a moment ago, like, but far worse. They will realize they got it wrong. Had is a compound name of two of the Syrian gods. It was actually a place about four miles from Megiddo in the middle of Israel, the Megiddo Valley. Those gods have been defeated by Israel, causing great mourning to the Syrians. They recognize, they realize that they've been worshiping the wrong gods. That's the context here. There's going to be a great mourning in Jerusalem, just as it was when the Syrians realized they had the wrong gods. Israel is going to suddenly realize that whatever they've been worshiping, it wasn't their Messiah. Their Messiah had come, as prophesied, born of a virgin, born in Bethlehem, that he'd given his life as a ransom for many. And they have rejected him. In fact, they had instigated his death. And it says, and the land shall mourn. Again, they got it horribly wrong the land shall mourn every family apart and the family of the house of David apart and their wives apart and the family of the house of Nathan apart and their wives apart the family of the house of Levi apart and their wives apart the family of Shimei apart and their wives apart and the families that remain every family apart and their wives apart this is speaking of the whole nation look at what we've got here we've got the king the prophet the priest all the people in mourning and repentance first of all the house of David that's the kingdom. The house of Nathan. Nathan was a prophet. So the king, the prophets. Levi was the priest, the priestly tribe. So the king, the prophets, the priests, they'd all got it wrong. And all the families that remain will suddenly realize they got it wrong, that Jesus was and is the Messiah. The one name that I've not mentioned there is Shimei. So I'm to just go back you read the account of Shimei in 2 Samuel 16. When David was fleeing Jerusalem because of the situation with Absalom, Shimei stands there on the hillside and he's kicking dirt and throwing stones and cursing David and everything else. He picked the wrong side. Because you read through the text and get to 2 Samuel 19 and David comes back to Jerusalem victorious. And Shimei is there in Repentance. Oh, I'm really sorry, David. I'm so sorry for what I said. What can I do to make it up to you? He realized he got it horribly wrong. The whole of this chapter is speaking of what is going to happen to the Jews. What has happened in part, but of the wonderful thing that God's grace will bring them back. Just like we read in Deuteronomy 4 earlier. Their eyes will be opened. God is a God of grace. You know, it's never too late for people that have turned away from him if they turn back. He is a gracious God. Let's bow our hearts. Father, we thank you for this time this morning to review, to study these things, to see your faithfulness to your people Israel, that the promises you made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob will be fulfilled. They will be again restored to that relationship you desired to have with them. And Lord, we see in this account how someone or a nation who had rejected you can find you again when they seek you with their whole heart. Father, we pray for all of our unsaved loved ones, those that have rejected you. Maybe, Lord, we know Christian friends that have walked away, but you are a gracious God. You are a God of restoration for those that call out to you. Father, we pray for them now. And we pray, Lord, that you stir our hearts, that we would seek you, that we would be such as those that were spoken of, that understood that through all of these things you are working all things according to your counsel and your plan. Help us to trust you, Lord, with these things as we see more and more of these things unfold in the days in which we live. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.